People often ask me how I got my kids to be such healthy eaters. And the truth is that one of the best things I did was bring them in the kitchen with me to cook. And research actually shows that kids who learn how to cook, eat more fruits and vegetables, are more willing to try new foods and have healthier diets overall. If you don't know how to cook or don't like to cook, the Kids Cook Real Food eCourse is for you. The course, which was created by a mom of four and former teacher, is designed to build connection, confidence, and creativity in the kitchen. In this course, you'll get more than 30 basic cooking skills, 45 videos, including a ton of bonuses, principal supply and grocery shopping lists, and kid-friendly recipes like veggie bean burritos and spaghetti squash lasagna. The course is designed for all kids ages two to teen and has three different skill levels. Your kids will learn how to crack eggs, cook rice, make a salad, and safely use knives, the oven, and appliances. If your kids have food allergies or dietary restrictions, no problem because the course has a ton of substitutions. My kids and I have taken the course and it was so easy to follow along that they even made an entire recipe on their own. More than 18,000 families have taken the course and the Wall Street Journal named it the number one cooking class for kids. If you're trying to cut down on processed foods and get your kids to eat more real whole foods and become healthy eaters, then the Kids Cook Real Food eCourse is for you. You can sign up for the course by going to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues. And because you're a listener, you'll get a free lesson. Again, go to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues and sign up today. We all know kids love their snacks, but finding healthy snacks with real food ingredients that won't break the bank isn't always easy. That's why I love Thrive Market. Thrive Market is an online membership-based market that makes healthy living easy and affordable. Everything is organic and non-GMO, and members save an average of $32 on every order. My kids love the Lara bars, seaweed snacks, and the skinny dip dark chocolate almonds. But Thrive Market is so much more than snacks. They also have organic and essential groceries, safe supplements, non-toxic home products, and clean beauty products, plus ethical meat, sustainable seafood, clean wine, and more. If you join today, you can get 25% off your first order and a free gift. All you have to do is go to thrivemarket.com slash foodissues where you can sign up and see my favorite items. And for every paid membership, they give a free membership to a family in need. So sign up today at thrivemarket.com slash food issues. This is Food Issues. In every episode, we bring you experts to tackle the real challenges around feeding kids and offer practical insights to help organizations, communities, and parents create change. I'm your host, Julie Revelon. We all know that nutrition during pregnancy is important, but oftentimes the information that's available is overwhelming and confusing. We are so separated from our food, and many of us lack a cohesive food culture and tradition that connects us to the land, each other, and our food. So it's hard because we have to relearn what we've culturally devalued and unlearned 
That's Amy J. Hammer, a nurse, writer, and author of the new book, How to Grow a Baby. We'll talk about the real reasons it's important to eat healthy during pregnancy, the best superfoods to focus on, plus how to cope with nausea, heartburn, and constipation. We'll also talk about how our values, culture, and stories can all affect our ability to eat healthy during pregnancy and throughout our lives. Well, Amy, welcome to the Food Issues Podcast. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. Why don't we jump right in and tell me a little bit about your story and why you became a nurse and a writer and what your business looks like today. Yeah, so um, I, I noticed when I was in college, a lot of my favorite teachers had a very winding path to where they were. And uh, I thought, I'll take a winding path too. So I actually have degrees in journalism, environmental studies. And then after a few years, I went back to get my RN. Um, and now I'm doing my nurse practitioner degree. So writing and medicine is, and environmental issues have always been part of my story. And I almost went to grad school for environmental literature. Um, and now I'm using, somehow I'm actually using all of my degrees, which when you have a lot of degrees, you never think that'll happen. Um, so I didn't think this would be my first book, but I've always been a writer and wanted to write books. But when my, uh, my first son was about seven months old, I started writing, not necessarily knowing where I was going, which I found is a real virtue when you write books. If you know where you're going, there's not a lot of room for surprise. Uh, so I started writing this book just out of fascination about something that's so average, which is pregnancy and having a baby that feels like outer space. You feel like you've inhabited a different planet and you learn so much. And I have so many books I love, but there were some that didn't have what I wanted and really uh, served me during pregnancy. So I just started writing and then um, got to the point where I was like, oh, someone advised me like you should do something with this. And and then so that all evolved. And then the partnership with my friend who's the illustrator evolved. And so we created this beautiful book together, um, How to Grow a Baby. And I'm working on my second book now. So the the story part is kind of this book feels like a, a good way to talk about all the things that really matter to me, but also the things that matter the most when I was pregnant. That's wonderful. Great. So let's talk about the basics. Why is nutrition so vital during pregnancy? Nutrition is so important during pregnancy because um, it affects you and your baby's development and long-term health. So when you're pregnant, you're not only responsible for growing a baby and a placenta, your own physiology alters in ways that really means you need a lot more nourishing food. So a couple examples is your blood volume and plasma, which is a component of your blood. They go way up. Um, your cardiac output, which is is just the amount of blood your heart pumps each minute, that goes way up. Your iron needs double or triple. Your B12 needs double. Folate needs increase 10 to 20-fold. Iodine needs increase. Metabolic rate and oxygen increase. So in other words, your whole body is changing to build a baby, and it needs it just needs more nourishment. <clears throat> so I think when we're and, – and then you can really break that all the way down to DNA synthesis in the baby and – how the placenta works to get nutrients across to the baby from your body. Um, there's a lot more, there's a lot more detail we can go into. Um, but the, the, the really important part is there's a lot of work that goes into growing a baby. Um, and I think that's kind of minimized. A lot of times we're just told, oh, the baby will get what it needs, but there's pretty good research, 
you know, for a long time, like you said, we've known that uh, parental or maternal nourishment, uh, actually both parents really do impact the long-term health and current development of a growing baby. Right. And poor nutrition during pregnancy could lead to having a child with childhood obesity. Is that right? So we can jump into, yeah, to wait um, next, because that kind of connects to what you're asking, which there's, there's, this is a really sensitive topic and it, and context really matters. And we're really focused on the numbers. Um, I, I like to think about what food nourishes and what food doesn't. So yeah, so for, for nutrition would be inadequate weight or too high a weight. So the problems first with like too low weight gain would be, you know, preterm birth and low birth weight or something like intrauterine growth restriction. But there are there's good research that weight gain above the guidelines, which we can also talk about, that increases the risk of things like gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, shoulder dystocia, large for gestation baby, and neonatal hypoglycemia, or where they come out and their blood sugar is low. Um, what, what's also interesting about maternal obesity, which is a huge problem for so many um, social and systemic reasons, and it often comes off as judgmental, which is not at all where I'm coming from. But what's interesting about it is that it can lead to epigenetic alterations, um, which is just a change in which genes are turned on and off um, and in a way that really increases the baby's risk of developing metabolic disorders later on. So, yeah, obesity is one of those metabolic disorders. And this science is really complicated. Um, but what they think is that nutrition affects placental gene expression. So the actual way the gene genes work in the placenta during pregnancy is affected by maternal nutrition. So things like high fat and high sugar diets, they can lead to this very rapid infant or fetal weight gain. And then this is really fascinating. That weight gain can alter appetite pathways and hormones like leptin and insulin. Um, and those get passed on to the baby and can predispose them to overweight or obesity in their adult lives. Um, and I think the biggest problem is we blame and judge mothers for gaining too much weight when we really need to work on supporting people with better information and access to healthy food. Yeah, that is a great point. And, and, you know, it's interesting when you're pregnant, I always found when I was pregnant with my daughters, um, so much of a focus is on just the well, you know, the wellness visits and the scans and, um, certain metrics that they, they want to make sure that we're hitting, um, if you will. And, and so much, less emphasis on what should I eat and how much should I eat? Um, why do you think that is? Yeah, well, since I'm on both sides of this, where I've been pregnant and on the side of the provider, um, the thing that I've come to understand that's incredibly important to understand is that on the provider side, you need one clear message that can reach an entire population. And there just isn't room for nuance. Um, you, you really need something that's clear. You can't really have in the fine print if you're this big, do this. If you this, do this. Um, people have such different access to food and nutrition. So really a number is this uh, measurable. It's something you can actually measure and keep track of in a way the other things are just so nuanced and so affected by socioeconomic and culture and and history and genetics. And um, I, I think before working in medicine, I wouldn't have really had such a hold on that. But now a lot of the recommendations you see as a parent from you know your doctor or pediatrician they have to give the simplest message that's the safest for the most amount of people. And so I, I, I really understand that side of it too, because it's really challenging 
Um, you have just such a diverse patient population when you're working on that side. But when you're a patient, you're like, I, I don't even want to weigh myself. Like, I know I'm eating healthy food. Can we talk about that? So it is interesting that the difference being on either side. So I think that's why is you, you really just need um, something you can document and keep track of and, and give as a guideline that's, that's simple and universal. Right. And the and the doctor's visit itself is so short, there's just not enough time. It's not set up. The healthcare system isn't set up in a way to reimburse for for that type of time and information. And then, you know, the onus is on the patient really to advocate for herself and and find that information. Yeah, there's a huge I think you're placed with this huge responsibility when you're pregnant and a lot of us aren't really given the tools um, to navigate what do we need and why the why comes back really importantly. Um, especially because you're right, it's not emphasized in those visits. There really isn't time. I, I've never felt such a strain on time as when you're seeing patients all day. It's a, it's unbelievable how little time you have. Um, so yeah, it definitely makes sense. You try to, and then you'll try to pack a little bit in about nutrition and, and, and some people just really don't want to hear it. And I have a lot of conversations about the knowing and the doing, which is we know we should do this, but do we do it? And and that disconnect is really is really apparent um, in all people, but in different levels. Right. And, and, you know, we hear a lot about gut health, especially lately with COVID. But, you know, a mother's gut microbiome can affect her baby's health. So can you talk to me about that and, and what women need to know? I love this subject so much. Um, and it's not just our gut microbiome that affects baby's health. It's also the microbiome in the mouth and vagina, on our skin, and our general habitat. So like our homes and the people around us. Um, I, I, this was so fascinating to research for my book. And so the maternal microbiome uh, influences both the mother and the baby. And I found this recent study or one that I cited in the book. Um, it can, you can do... Uh, you can look at the mom's microbiome or parent's microbiome and use it to predict the likelihood of preterm birth, which is really new and complicated, but that's, that's amazing. And uh, other thing is we used to think the placenta was a sterile uh, place, but there's research in mice that found actual microbial metabolites from the mom's gut in the placenta and fetal tissue. So what we're saying from that is we know that uh, there's some, this is not a sterile place that we're having some horizontal you know, and vertical transfer of the gut microbiome. But what's really fascinating is that despite we all this research coming in about, we know that the maternal microbiome influences infant health. We still have a very poor understanding about the impacts on the microbiome during pregnancy. So whenever I come back to this, which is like the end of every beautiful research paper is like, we still just don't know enough to say anything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's this really beautiful, um, it's like 2013 Michael Pollan essay in the New York Times. Um, Some of my best friends are germs is the title. And he talks about microbiome research and all the information and how any, and he draws a metaphor between you know, farmers or gardeners and how we don't really understand the billions of microbes in the soil, but we generally understand how to keep soil healthy with compost, nutrients, mulch, beneficial plants and insects. And that's how I like to think about our microbiome, kind of like this internal garden or ecosystem on, in, around us. Um, So yeah, so the research is developing, but we know generally that eating a very diverse diet, rich in plants, especially vegetables is good for our health and our microbes. 
and that this microbiome gets passed to the infant and impacts the development of their gut, their immune system, their metabolic function. And this all affects their long-term health and weight gain and body composition. Um, so really write about the microbiome as something that you you form and it's kind of like a lineage you pass on. And there's this really wonderful uh, biologist, Scott Gilbert. He talks about birth not as this you know kind of Western notion, creation of a new individual, but this cultivation of a new community of um, organisms. And it's just, I love that idea that you're born kind of in a symbiosis um, with your parent, but also that you're, you're new, your new community. So I, I wrote about that a bit because I just think it's really amazing. That is interesting. And that research that you cited about preterm birth, that's a huge issue right now for, for pregnant women. Do you think that that is that research it's emerging, but it, it will inform what we can then do to prevent preterm birth? You always hope with that kind of research, it, it, it is used that way, but research takes a long time to get into clinical practice or use, but anything that can point us into the direction of preventing more preterm birth is really important. Um, so yeah, I hope that's used eventually. It's just so new still. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. So we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk more about nutrition during pregnancy and what women need to know. I'm always trying to get more fruits and vegetables and real foods in my kids' diets. But between school, work, sports, and everything else we have going on, I don't have a lot of time. I need simple, easy kitchen appliances that can help me save time. And the one that I can't do without is the Vitamix. When I received it as a Christmas present a few years ago, I admit I was skeptical because I already had a blender. But the first time I used it, I was hooked. Unlike other blenders, the Vitamix blends everything up into a super smooth consistency, much like a juicer would, except you get all the nutritious fiber that regular juicers leave behind. And what I love most about the Vitamix is that it isn't just for smoothies. Every Vitamix has an entire range of textures to choose from, so you can use it to make dips and spreads, nut and seed butters, hummus and guacamole, muffins, pizza dough, plant-based milk, and frozen treats. Vitamix has been around for 70 years and all of their blenders are powerful, durable, and built to last. And they come with a full warranty. To get free shipping off any Vitamix purchase over $50, just go to my website, julierevelant.com shop and click on Vitamix. So Amy, when I was pregnant, I remember there being a ton of information available, but it all seemed really confusing and overwhelming. And I I actually had a friend, her kids are a lot older than mine, but I remember her telling me that, you know, she had this big kind of Bible of nutrition during pregnancy and she read it cover to cover and she was so uh, stuck on all the different nutrients that she needed that she ended up gaining way too much weight. And she was already underweight, um, but she just, she gained too much because she was so nervous and she wanted to make sure she was getting every single nutrient that she should. So how can we make this really easy for moms? What nutrients do they need during pregnancy? And what are some easy general rules in terms of amounts for each nutrient? So I'll try to make it easy in, in my very complicated style. But so, so first off, I think the information is confusing and overwhelming because in general, we are so separated from our food and many of us lack a cohesive food culture and tradition that connects us 
to the land, each other, and our food. So it's hard because we have to relearn what we've culturally devalued and unlearned and really reestablish that food and what we eat, how it's grown, where it comes from is really important for our whole health and ecosystem. So I appreciate and understand your question and this desire for an easy solution for parents. Um, the thing I struggle with and, and don't like is talking about food as isolated nutrients. Um, what nutrients do I need? I, for me, and, and the way food actually is, is it's, it's more than nutrients. Um, it's nourishment, social connection, community, and culture. And beyond that, studies do show that whole foods, and especially combinations of whole foods, they have way more benefits than any singular isolated nutrients. So I'll, I'll try to answer the question two ways. So, so first, some of the nutrients, so like this kind of isolated nutrient world that are really important include, but aren't limited to, folate, choline, DHA, fat-soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K, vitamin C and D, iodine, cholesterol, iron, vitamin B6, I'll go on, B12, zinc, <laughs> gelatin, collagen, calcium, magnesium, potassium, trace metals. So macros like protein, fat, and carbs. So I can, so yeah, I could just list all the nutrients and tell you those are all very important. There are very specific amounts like your friend was talking about. And on this, I always cite um, nutrition expert, Lily Nichols. Um, she has an excellent book that goes very much into the specific amounts. Um, that's not as much what my book does. I can, I can talk about the specific amounts of, you know, really increasing protein and getting DHA from things like wild fish. One of the big ones I think is is an important nutrient to single out is vitamin D, getting at least 4,000 either in your prenatal or as an additional supplement. Um, you know, but what's easier than counting nutrients uh, is eating whole foods. So for me, the simplest way to think about this before, during, after pregnancy, your whole life um, is to focus on the kinds of foods that give you that long list of nutrients that are a lot easier to remember. So things like pasture-raised eggs and chicken, grass-fed beef and lamb, wild salmon, sardines, anchovies, wild-caught seafood, bone broth, um, you know, things like bone-in short ribs and organ meats, which we can talk a lot more about. So traditional fertility foods like salmon roe and oysters, lots of leafy greens, seasonal vegetables, fruits. Just, you know, the, the emphasis is really on this diverse palate and diversity beyond what we always typically imagine as just the only healthy food. So things like spices and, um, you know, lots of fermented products and rice and grains. And then the other part of this question is being gentle with yourself, because if you put that burden on yourself to be perfect, then you're just stressing yourself out. Um, and then in your, in your first trimester, for me, I was like, I really would like some pizza. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I. My husband doesn't always eat gluten, so I had to like go out and find a friend. Like, look, I need to eat pizza with someone, and it was so delightful. It was good pizza, it was sourdough crust, and good ingredients. But I think just having this realistic expectation of like, I'm going to eat a really diverse, um, really pleasure filled diet, but also have pizza during the first trimester if it's the only or whenever you know if it's what's sounding like the only thing I want to eat. Yeah, yeah, those are all good points. So are there some pregnancy food myths that, that women should know about? Yeah, and I think a lot of these myths have been covered really well by writers like Emily Oster and Lily Nichols. Um, Emily Oster, she ate 
really good sushi with David Chang's wife um, on the show Ugly Delicious, which the emphasis is on really high quality sushi there. Um, so if you're going to eat things like raw fish or any raw products, you need to be really high quality. And this comes back to that blanket statement when we're telling people not to eat things. It's really a reflection of our food system and how we produce food in this country. So some of the myths are, you know, kind of true where you want to avoid things like certain fish because of mercury. But this really does reflect more that we put mercury into our food system. And and I just mm-hmm. think the emphasis is always like, oh, these fish have mercury and never, never back to. We have to avoid them because we put mercury into our environment. Mm-hmm. And and that for me is always the part that I get caught up on is that the, the cause there is so much more troubling than the food we have to avoid. Um other types of myths, uh, you know, are things like we need to avoid coffee and caffeine, which I'm very grateful is not is not proven by any research. And it's safe to enjoy one to two cups a day or sometimes more. Um, the drinking of alcohol while pregnant, um, you know, this is pretty controversial. And some people go on the side of, you know, there's no research to show that there's harm. But I, I really err on the side of caution here. I, I don't drink at all while pregnant or breastfeeding. Uh, and that's a lot to do with, you know, for me, I, I'm really affected by uh, even having like half a glass of wine. I'm like, oh, I can feel that. So I think that's pretty personal, but I err on the side of caution there. Um, so things that aren't myths are things like not eating, you know, bad quality sushi or deli meat or um, food that's contaminated. Uh but if you focus on this high quality kind of small scale production as much as you can within, you know, your, your finances, uh, then those are, those are safe foods and kind of what people have eaten, you know, throughout millennium. And are there guidelines in terms of how many calories women should get at e- during each trimester? Yeah. And there are, and I have to caveat that I have never counted calories just because uh, the way I think about food, like I, I talked about a little bit before, is much more like uh, not how many calories, but I'm just thinking of combinations and, and foods and recipes and everything. But so the general recommendation, which varies on your weight and BMI uh, genetics activity level, is about 300 extra calories a day. Um, so, you know, The big parts of those 300 calories is that you need about 40% more protein before 20 weeks and about 70% higher protein intake later in in pregnancy. Um, Also, fat is really important. So I think just saying, oh, you need to eat 300 extra calories. It's very easy to get that um, in a lot of simple carb sugar forms, but really focusing on that protein intake and then just a overall nourishing, uh, you know, nutrient dense diet, it kind of eliminates needing to count or add up calories. And not that that's the wrong. Some people really do well keeping track. And so I think it's just knowing what works for you. Um, some people will get triggered with eating disorders if they keep track of calories. Um, so it's, it's really nuanced. It's context again is really important. Right. So would you say a good rule of thumb is focus on real whole foods as much as possible and leave a little bit of room for treats? Yeah. And, and I just can't say like a clean yes or no, because, um, you know, treats, depending on what's going on for your body, you might have to just not have them, um, you know, depending on what the treat is. So like if you're talking about treats, you know, um, like a high sugar treat and you 
are prone to gestational diabetes or high blood sugar, that's a really different um, topic than if you're not. So again, there's a lot of nuance and context there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought up added sugar. So in season three, it was dedicated to added sugars and why we and our family should avoid them. And so what does research show about moms consuming added sugars during pregnancy? Yeah, so there was a, there's many studies, but there's a 2020 review from the journal um, Nutrients, and it's about the evidence and impact of sugary food consumption on pregnancy. And so for moms who are eating a lot of um, sugary or processed sugar-added food, pretty much your risk for all metabolic disorders goes up, overweight, obesity, gestational diabetes, hypertension, um, hypertensive prenatal disorders like preeclampsia, premature delivery, um, for the babies, obesity, low birth weight, you know, cognitive, cognitive skill reduction and asthma. Um, so what happens is, you know, when you're eating a lot of sugar, uh, added food, the glucose and the fructose, they diffuse through the placenta. And again, that goes back to how it affects fetal development. Um, so what the study found is that the dietary patterns we have that are really rich or high in processed foods and sugar are very clearly associated with the main complications during pregnancy. You know, things we talked about like gestational diabetes and premature um, delivery. Uh, And so it's pretty clear that added sugars don't have a good place in our diet. The, The problem is that they're ubiquitous. They're in every food object around us. And sometimes they taste really good. And so it's really, that's when the doing and the knowing really have this gap is we know we shouldn't eat sugar, but it's so good. So um, it's really hard I, I, to say don't eat sugar is is really reductive. And I think that's where you, you know, you're talking about knowing the why is so important because you're like, okay, I know the why, how am I going to skill my life around this to try to figure it out? Because it's, it's really challenging. Yeah. So you you talked a little bit about some amazing foods for women during pregnancy. What are your favorite superfoods for pregnancy? Yeah, so I love this question because I kind of broke it in. There's an illustration in the book where we call um, we call them condition, uh, conditionally essential, and so these are the things you just need more of when you're pregnant. So superfoods, the top foods I think I mentioned are eggs and bone broth and slow cooked meats. Um, things like leafy greens, but we can break, break these down kind of so I can marry whole foods with nutrients. So the first one I'll mention is glycine, which comes from things like bone broth, eggs, dairy, and slow cooked bone and meat. The second topic or category would be vitamin D. So I like calling sunshine a superfood. It's not a food, obvious, obviously, <laughs> but vitamin D is so important for um, our prenatal health. So things like sunshine and supplements most often uh, wild fish and beef liver, cheese and eggs. Those have some vitamin D. Mostly people have to supplement. Um, pretty much all of us have to supplement with vitamin D because of the way we live. So B vitamins and choline. So things again, like eggs, eggs come up a million times, which is very, they're very good foods. Um, liver and pastured meats, leafy greens, seafood and poultry. So our antioxidant and mineral category. So fruits and seaweed, dark chocolate, greens, vegetables, Calcium and K2 is a really interesting one. Um, and those are come from, you know, things like fermented dairy. Uh, so fermented dairies, yogurt, cheese, kefir, um, things like animal liver. Again, I love talking about liver because a lot of us don't want to eat it, but it's very good food. 
um, things like salmon and collards, natto. And then the, the final category I have on there is probiotics. So that kind of comes back to our, you know, sauerkraut, kimchi, lacto-fermented veggies and the maternal gut microbiome. Yeah. I was eating liver for quite a while because I'm anemic and, you yeah. know, um, it had to be prepared a certain way in order for exactly. it to be palatable. How do you like making it? Yeah, I went to the same thing and I write about in the book where the first time I made it, I was like, wow, this is a very large piece of meat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I, it was just very overwhelming. Um, the way I like to prepare it most often, and I do it different ways, but I keep it frozen and I'll use a very sharp knife and cut tiny slivers and just pan and then I just pan fry them because they, they defrost super fast. I salt salt on each side. So I'll I'll fry them in my uh, cast iron skillet and also but then I'll also cook them with like um pan fried apples. Wow, so, that sounds and delicious. Liver, like on sour. Yeah, my next book has that recipe in it and it, and I have it on my blog too, but um yeah, just it's so the flavor is so good and it's not overwhelming and going with the apples it cuts that really like gamey liver taste. It's so good. And when I eat it, I'm, I just immediately feel like uh, very nourished. I'm like, oh, I just, you feel it like it hits you and it's a very powerful food. So that's how I eat it and love to eat it. All right. I have to try that. That's awesome. Yeah. So let's talk about gut health. Do you recommend that pregnant women focus on fermented vegetables, yogurt, kefir, things like that? Yeah, as long as you can tolerate dairy, obviously, um, those foods, I, I always had um, my first breakfast when I was pregnant was like, uh, you know, eggs and probably bacon and lots of greens. And then I'd always have breakfast dessert, um, which was, <laughs> uh, if you're, you know, hungry, <laughs> I was working long hours. So my breakfast dessert was always, you know, full fat Greek yogurt with seasonal fruits and things like cacao nibs and coconut and nuts. And so that way I was kind of getting best of both worlds flavor wise, but also getting in these fermented products in my diet. Um, so the things that really promote gut health, we know about, you know, are this really high quality, colorful seasonal diet with all these fermented products and vegetables and lots of fiber. The things that disrupt it are added sugar minimal and uh, processed foods and refined carbohydrates. And I just really like in nutrition how things just repeat and repeat and repeat. So the things that build a healthy baby also build a healthy, healthy gut, you know, and they just build your healthy body. Um, so then the other thing that's important when you promote gut health is, you know, reducing your exposure to things like pesticides and other toxic chemicals. And then the big one is only taking antibiotics when medically necessary and not using antibacterial soaps. Um, and, and going beyond that in the book, we kind of talk about, you know, your home microbiome and keeping your windows open and, um, taking shoes off inside these, these little things that kind of, um, create the right kind of microbial richness around you instead of really focusing on sterility, which is really important. Yeah. Like you said, with the COVID world. And a lot of women obviously, you know, deal with morning sickness, nausea and fatigue. Are there foods that can help combat some of that? Yeah. So, you know, the things we hear about are is eating small, frequent meals. You know, um, people are told to eat things like saltines, which has no research behind them. So the things that have research, which also if those work for you, that's okay. Um, so the things that have some good research are B6 containing foods. So things like avocado and banana, pistachio, sunflower seeds, meat, fish, and poultry, things like ginger, 
spending time outside, smelling good smells like lavender and peppermint. Um, people also swear by, you know, magnesium supplements. Or, um, so for me, though, what really mattered the most for morning sickness or nausea was getting protein immediately in the morning in the form of scrambled eggs. And before I had the eggs, I was like, that sounds horrible. But as long as I had that food in my body upon waking, I, I did not um, get sick. And that's not going to be true for everyone. But the reason we think that something like scrambled eggs or other like high protein and fat containing foods help is because they help stabilize your blood sugar. Uh, so that can help reduce nausea and vomiting, you know, not only when you're pregnant, but, but in general. So I, I do think it takes some experimenting uh, to find what works for you. There, there are those B6 foods and high protein foods. I've told people about eggs when they're in their first trimester and they're like, are you kidding me? And I'm like, I, <laughs> but for me, it was the only thing that worked. So I can't help but be a huge fan of eggs. Um, but I, yeah, so things like keeping your blood sugar stable are, are some of the most important. And a lot of the foods that are recommended, you know, during the first trimester are ones that spike your blood sugar. Um, and this is where you come back to being gentle with yourself and being like, oh, I had that. It spiked my blood sugar. Okay, I'm going to try this tomorrow or, you know, but also being really uh gentle with yourself. That first trimester is very ex exhausting, but trying as much as you can to avoid, you know, refined carbohydrates, processed foods and added sugar. I remember being with my, I was pregnant with my second daughter and, um, telling the midwife, I can, you know, like, what can you do for the nausea? I was, you know, I welcomed it because I knew that it was a healthy pregnancy. Um, but she, she recommended uh, a B6 supplement and it was such a game changer once I took it. Oh, good. Yeah. And that reminds me of one other thing when you were talking about what can you do. The other thing is, uh, you know, I worked for a night shifts for about a month when I was pregnant and my, it was almost unmanageable and I was taking care of very sick patients. So it was like very, everything around me was smelled and triggering and I was getting like people were throwing up that I was taking care of. So when I switched back to days and increased, you know, B6 foods and vitamin D and time outside, it, it turned it around for me. Um, so if you can, if you're working nights or shift work, just, I, I presented a whole case to my boss was like, I should not, and people should not work nights. Of course, some people love working nights, so it's not for everyone, but um, she's like, okay, okay, you can work on days. Um, <laughs> so that was big for me is like fighting for my case. I was like, this, I can't do this. So yeah. And you know, 30 to 50% of women have pregnancy heartburn. Are there foods to avoid that can worsen heartburn? Yeah. And, and this is such a hard one because, you know, we, we are told smaller, more frequent meals, avoid laying flat or bending over after meals for 20 to 30 minutes, avoid spicy foods or acidic foods like tomatoes, caffeine. Um, so, so all of those recommendations can help, but I also have a very close friend and she tried everything and she said nothing helped. So I, I, I hate these kinds of ones where sometimes things don't work. Um, but those are the general recommendations is stay upright after eating, avoid triggering foods like spicy, you know, acidic foods and small meals. But yeah, sometimes I think some people are just predisposed to having more heartburn. And this is one of those areas where all the research I've done on it, I never experienced it. Um, so I didn't get to go through that same experimentation of like, okay, what works for me? Because you could be told a million things, but then you kind of have to say like, okay, what, what would work for me? Is it walking after eating? Is it, um, you know, eating this food or not this? And so I think all of these take a little bit of investigation. And as as well as avoiding like the the 
big culprits. Right. And also women often have constipation during pregnancy. And and obviously that can be helped with eating high fiber foods. But if you're not really up for eating those types of foods, what what can they do? Yeah. So, yeah. So fermented foods and high fiber are important. Um, Some people really like to uh, supplement with psyllium husk fiber and swear by it. So like um, it comes in that jar and you do like a scoop of it every day. So that plus hydration keeps things moving. And but this also comes back to moving um, and movement being some of the and walking being my absolute favorite movement when I'm pregnant. I think moving your body in many different ways for a lot of hours during the day, which is a huge topic in, in the book that I, that I write about is a, a really big, a really good way to uh, fight constipation. And, and movement's hard because before you do it, especially when you're tired and pregnant, you're like, I, I do not want to do that. And then once you do it, you feel a lot better. And that's kind of how movement works in our life. So um, it's another thing where like, I don't want to eat a lot of fiber I don't want to move. And it's just, there's that separation when you're tired between knowing and doing again, where if you can just go for a little walk and drink some water or supplement with psyllium husk, it can make a huge difference, both in energy and um, constipation levels. So yeah. And I think all of these these tips that you've given us, I think that they're so important because whether you were super healthy before you got pregnant or you're just starting on your road to health, all of these things can really translate once you have children and you're, you want to raise them in a healthy way as well. So we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about snacks and easy ways to kind of pull all of these um, tips together. If you have picky eaters, you're not alone. And as a mom of two, I totally get it. But through the years, as both a journalist and a mom, I've discovered the secrets to raising kids who love their veggies and will eat just about anything. And I want to share what I've learned with you in my free ebook, 15 Secrets to Raise Healthy Eaters and Put an End to Picky Eating. This book is filled with evidence-based real-life strategies that will help you raise healthy eaters without sneaking foods, bribing, negotiating, or making food into art projects. To get the book, just go to julierevelant.com and click on freebies. So Amy, let's talk about snacks because I think that a lot of women rely on snacks, especially to, to balance their blood sugar during pregnancy and when they're out and about. So what should they focus on when choosing snacks and what are your, some of your favorite ideas for healthy snacks? Yeah, so I talked about my favorite um, second breakfast of Greek yogurt or plain whole fat yogurt with coconut, uh, cacao nibs, berries, and nuts. That I would just bring in my bag to work um, and eat, you know, at the appropriate 1030 time, usually. Uh, Other examples, nuts, avocado with salt and pepper, um, apples or celery with nut butter or cheese, uh, veggies and hummus. We do jerky in our house, like make beef jerky from grass-fed beef. Um, We, you know, also made like homemade paleo cookies or muffins, those kind of easy to eat snacks. Um, but I do think things like nuts and cheese, or a, a lot of times I'll bring an apple with walnuts and Parmesan, or, um, you know, if I want something sweet, I'll bring like one or two dates, uh, you know, with a bunch of nuts and again, something like Parmesan cheese, just things that taste really good. Also right now, you know, I'm eating things like persimmon and because they're in season, persimmons and gouda, or we'll make almond flour crackers or or buy them. 
either way is fine, obviously. And uh, so, th- or we'll make like granola bark or buy Patagonia or other Lara bars, you know, these kinds of easy to bring along, still nutrient dense, not sugar loaded snacks can help balance your, your blood sugar. I also feel like with small children, my life is now the happiness of my children is determined by snacks. So I think about this a lot and the same things I ate with pregnancy, I, you know, I, I give them, it's like, Oh, we have, you know, wild salmon jerky today and they, they love it. Wow, so that's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I tricked them into liking all the same things, which is really nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I don't think you trick them. Right. I mean, they just follow your lead and yeah. they, they want to be just like mom. So yeah, that's great. So in your book, you talk about the language and routines and habits and the stories that we tell ourselves and how it all impacts our ability to choose and also keep choosing healthy foods. I'd love for you to explore these ideas a little bit more with me. Yeah, so I think it's easy to talk about food in list form. Like these are important and we need these nutrients. But um, I, I do think there's an overlap. And this is kind of the story and language part of the book and and why I wrote it narratively to explore this dynamic is there's an overlap with the food we eat and what we need based on how we used to live as humans. Um, So for example, like eating the whole animal from head to tail, you know, that gives us pieces we need to grow new life. Um, And then, you know, these foods that take story or think that I, that I really think take story are things like say bone broth or beef liver. Like the first time you have these foods, the story you tell yourself might be, oh, in my family or my culture, Western culture, this is a gross food. This is disgusting. Um, where, you know, these were very cherished foods. So how, so looking at, well, what is my story I'm telling myself and how can I change it? So, so like, for example, you know, really trying again, like with your kids, if they don't like broccoli once, you're not like, well, broccoli's out forever. You're like, I'm going to try that again. <laughs> right. And I think that you just treat yourself kind of with that open childhood curiosity. I didn't like liver that time. I wonder if I can like it. And then you're, there's actually good research to show, you know, exposure changes your taste buds. Um, one of the things I wrote about, which really marries this idea of story and nourishment, you know, story is nourishment, but also food is nourishment and story is, I would have you know, bone broth, either that I made or more likely my mom made or I got from the store and I would take it in a thermos on a walk. And so, you know, I would have my bone broth and I'd be moving and it'd be this, this feeling of being really cared for, especially if my mom made it because her, her bone broth is, is definitely the best. So, so that's the kind of story where it's like, oh, instead of saying, here's my list, I got to drink my bone broth at 8, 20 AM. It's like, I'm going to go for a walk and and have this be something that's a routine or a habit or this like sense of, you know, we can call it self-care or whatever. But um, I wrote about it as, you know, I need the story of the food as much as I needed the actual foods. Um, and that those stories can really connect or disconnect us from food. So like, for example, my mom taught me about the importance of being economic with food, of using the whole animal um, and taught me how to cook. So I think those those kinds of stories we tell ourselves, they're really open for change and rewriting, which is really one of the base messages of this book is like we all get to use and change language and language mediates our experience with the world around us, including food. So I think food stories are so powerful. And when you're pregnant, it's like this sneaky time that you can rewrite your story um, and convince yourself otherwise because your whole brain is changing 
So I like to think of it as like very, this like neural window when you can trick yourself or rewrite your story, whatever you want to call it, to, to be maybe a little more open and learning and, and maybe in making those changes instead of saying like a list being like, okay, I want to explore, why do I feel this way about grass fed beef liver, which is very triggering for people to be grossed out about. Um, so I just think it's a good challenge. It's a good time to, to explore the story of food you tell yourself. I love that. I feel like no one's really talking about this. This is really important. And, and you know, definitely it, pregnancy is a time where you can have that fresh start, you know, I mean, at any point really, but it's such an opportunity to really think about your health and your future children's health. And so what, what are some ways that you, you suggest women kind of make healthy eating easy during pregnancy and, and not stress out about it and, and make it fit into their lifestyles? Yeah. So I think the, I mean, I don't know if this is easy, but I think when you, if you align kind of your values with good food, um, it's a lot easier to choose good food. So what I mean by that is eating healthy in our culture is not easy. And so I think it takes this dedication and commitment and making it something you really value. Um, we, we kind of value convenience and cost efficiency and, and all of those things are very real in my life, but I've also decided, okay, while I'm on, you know, like working from home and, and not working full time and not making as much money, like this is still a priority. Um, so our culture makes it hard, but I think taking the time to read and learn is the most important first step you can take. Um, and there's strategies, you know, things like shopping at the farmer's market or buying whole foods. Um, you know, I think those are good solutions long-term and short-term, but really taking ownership of uh, the food you eat and, and learning for yourself, I think is really important. And I, and I talk, uh, you know, I talk to this about this with patients a lot is they know this and, and they ask me tips also. And I say, so is it more helpful if I tell you this, or if you go home and, you know, take this and look it up yourself. And when they go home and kind of look things up and come back and report to me is when I know there's going to be a change. So there's an ownership with food and a, and a, and like this proudness and kind of like celebration of food. Um, I find really important beyond talking about nutrients and uh, calories and just this sense of feeling celebratory and, and pleasure in food, I think is a, for me, it's the easiest way to keep eating good food is because I, I really take a lot of pleasure in it. Um, and I think that pleasure is so key to keep going because if you have a list and you're trying to get all the food in and you're setting yourself up to kind of feel let down because uh, it's impossible to just do to be perfect when you're pregnant. It's so hard. Um, but if you can kind of enjoy what you are eating and, and value the food you're eating and, and that connects you to movement and your environment and your community, I, I just can't see a better way to kind of get your foot in the door and in an economical way because we all have to think about that with food. Um, so yeah, um, those are some of my kind of ways that I've, I've done it in my life, which I know is not the normal way we talk about it. Yeah, no, that's great. So Amy, tell me where listeners can go to learn more about you and your work. Yeah. So my website is amyjhammer.com and on there I post recipes and some blogs and you can find information about my book, how to grow a baby, a science-based guide to nurturing new life from pregnancy to childbirth and beyond, illustrated by my best friend, uh, Michelle Lasling, who's a fantastic artist. Um, I'm also on Instagram at Amy Jess Hammer. And those are my main two places. Great, great. Well, Amy, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you. 
I loved chatting with Amy J. Hammer, and I thought she provided a really fresh and relevant perspective on how we eat in the U.S. and the effect it has on our health and our children's health. If you found this episode helpful, I'd love it if you could go into Apple Podcasts and leave a review and a rating so we can reach more people. I'm Julie Revelant, and thank you for listening to Food Issues. You can connect with me on julierevelant.com and on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 